0: Good afternoon, everyone! Are you having a great net? Yeah? Hopefully you have had a wonderful time in the city. Please share your thanks with our volunteers, with Sean, with Amy, and the staff. But we're excited to have each of you here with us today. I'm Jade Floyd, Vice President of Communications at the Case Foundation. And one year ago, I stood before you all to announce the inaugural Clarence B. Jones Impact Award, an award from the communications network that aims to inspire, celebrate, and champion transformative social sector communications campaigns. This award is going to be given annually to a network member, an individual, a team, or an organization as a whole, who has created lasting impact using communications for good. And I want to send a thanks to the sponsor of this award, the Heinz Endowment and also to the slate of judges who unanimously voted on our award recipient. As you all know, we in the social sector are in the ideas business. But ideas aren't translated into action without the efforts of each of you in this room. So keep an eye out in your inbox because over the next few weeks, we're gonna be opening up the application for the next award, and I'm hoping that many of you will nominate your entity the Clarence B. Jones Award was named after Dr. Jones, who's sitting right here in the audience who you heard from earlier today. He's an iconic le- leader of the civil rights movement. He was the same man who snuck the letters from Birmingham jail out from the facility on scraps of paper in his pants. He was the same man who carried the briefcase filled with $100,000 in bills from the personal vault of Nelson Rockefeller and use that money to bail Dr. King from jail. He continues to educate, inspire, teach, write, speak. And his role at Stanford University is educating the next generation. His entire career has been about impact, so thank you, Dr. Jones. So it's my true honor to stand before you today and to stand before Dr. Jones to present the winner of the inaugural Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. This award is going to the Truth Initiative, an organization that's dedicated to making tobacco a thing of the past. The judging panel, as I said, unanimously voted for the Truth Initiative as the winner. So please join me, welcoming to the stage, Eric Ashe from the Truth Initiative who will share more with you about their transformational communications campaign that has mobilized a generation to end tobacco use.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Hi. All right. Got it? All right. Awesome, thank you so much. Thank you very much for this award. Uh, to say that I am and we are humbled and honored is an understatement. Thank you for your contribution and thank you for Honoring us. I, am, I must confess, I am having a little bit of a I'm not worthy moment at, at this stage, but I'm, I'm not giving this back. If it's okay with you, I'm gonna, <laughs> I am going to keep this award. Uh, so thank you very, very much. Um, <clears throat> so I'm really excited to spend some time with you and share our story uh, how truth has uh, really made a difference in impacting youth and youth culture and I think changing the public landscape to a large degree. And and just real quickly, some things that we're going to go over. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about us. Actually, I'm going to talk a lot about us. Uh, In in that section where I talk about us, I'm going to try my best to really focus on the key strategic decisions that we made early on in the formation of the organization that have led to our success. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about things that you already know. How many of you in the audience know who we are before when you came in? A good number of you. Awesome. So I won't spend a lot of time belaboring the finer points of the 501c3 status, and you know a bunch about that, but really, who are we and why is that important and why is it germane to our ongoing success? Then I'm going to talk about a little bit like how do we actually structure and make the magic happen. So a peek behind the curtain. Uh, what does it look like when we actually try to formalize the strategy and go into a little bit more granularity in terms of how we make decisions, how we measure the campaign, how we know it actually works, so I'll go into that. Then I'll talk about our posture, I'll share some of the work, some show and tell. So as we talk about the strategy, it's helpful I think to see that play out in the real world versus just talk about this in an ethereal way. And then I'll spend a little bit of time talking about the road ahead, and it's thorny to say the least. Um, And just share with you some things we're thinking about, some of the challenges that we're going to face, uh, and hopefully come back in the near future. Sean, that was a little plug there, to share uh, how the story ends up evolving for us over time. So a couple of ground rules as we get engaged. Number one, I want you to get your marketing vibe on. I want you to feel the marketing vibe. And so for some of you, based on what you do, it's natural. Uh, Some of you would think when you hear the word marketing, and if I use some of the marketing terms, that may feel uncomfortable to you, Uh, particularly if you're a practitioner, if you're in the research side, you may have some skepticism when you hear those words. But I want to challenge you, because whether you think this way or not, if you are engaging with consumers or a constituency or any population, you are competing for their attention. You're competing for market share, if you will. And so I want you to think that way. It may not be your default position in terms of how you think about the work you do and how you deploy your resources, but for this conversation, I want you to think about a marketer and put aside any of the negative connotations that may come with those terms. Second, I want you to lean forward. There are so many times when I share our story and people will opt out because they say, well, we don't have the resources and uh, we don't have a clear binary enemy the way that you do in the tobacco industry. And that's all fair, very fair. I realize that we are in many cases an anomaly based on who we are and how we're structured and the funding mechanism, but I challenge you not to use that as an excuse to say why you can't do something. There's something here for you to learn. It's really a question of scale. You can take every single thing that I'm sharing with you and figure out a way to scale it for your budget, your audience, your needs. So please, please lean forward, don't lean back. <clears throat> and on that note, I want you to give your inner critic, uh, give your inner critic a break. Uh, try not to criticize me, try not to judge me. I wouldn't have said it that way, that slide's not that clear. Uh, don't judge yourself. I couldn't do that, I don't have the resources, just relax. Take it in. I find when I'm in your position and I hear people talk, sometimes what I hear the individual actually presenting is really salient and I write that down and it sticks with me. Other times if I just relax and try to silence the noise and be present, what happens on stage leads me to think about other things in a new way. So I really hope that happens for you. One other rule of engagement, I am fighting a sinus infection (laughs) and I'm so sorry to share that with you. There's a distinct possibility that I may have to come over here and blow my nose during the presentation. So what I'm asking you is a vow that you will not post that on social media. (laughs) All in favor say aye. Aye. Now, if Congress worked like that, we would be off to the races, right? So thank you for that. So I'm going to start at the top, a little bit about us and who we are. So I've been married for 10 years, almost 10 years, and I love my wife, she's amazing. If you're married or with a significant other, you probably had the same experience and you're dating or you're with someone for a while and you're trying to get to know them and the rhythms and the patterns and then you meet their parents and you go, oh, it makes sense now. I understand why they talk the way they do. Or if you aren't married and you meet your grandparents and you understand, oh, that's why my parents act a certain way. The reason I want to talk about us and how we were formed is because it's been very important. The DNA of how we were formed has played to our advantage It's who we are as an organization. It's a strength. And my guess is the same thing is the case with you as well. You see it in your personal life and probably from your organization. And to make a short story very short, we were born out of a fight. We're fighters, and we are good at fighting. This is a picture on the New York Times. I guess this was in the 99, close to 2000, the tobacco executives when they were testifying before Congress, and they all said, tobacco is not addictive. Tobacco doesn't cause cancer. No, we didn't, we didn't do anything wrong. And, of course, they lied. And as a result of all of those findings, the states sued Big Tobacco and money was dispersed. And I'm not going to go into the granularity of that. But what's important behind that is that we came out with a charge to fight for the people who were taken advantage of because they were lied to. Communities were devastated, the, the countless number of people that died from cancer. And so for us, we use that as real power, real momentum because we are fighters. And everything we do, we're fighters. And so what we try to do really is focus on what are we best at. And when we talk about tobacco control in the landscape, I will, if you hear me say things like we're the best, we're the greatest, yes, I think that we are great. Um, if you hear me take credit for everything we've done, that's an overstatement. I stand on the shoulders of the people who went before me, I stand on the shoulders of decades of work that were done at the community level in states. As an organization, the only reason why we exist is because people were really doing the hard work on the ground for decades. And we came on top of all of that that work and that effort and we were able to use that momentum to our advantage to make a real impact. I recognize that. The other thing that's really important to note is that for us, we know public education doesn't work in a vacuum and there are lots of things that go into how do you curtail prevention and drive down the smoking rates. One of them is public education, that's what we do and we focus on almost exclusively. But these things happen in concert with things that are happening on the ground, the hard work of policy change. So when tobacco prices increase, when you tax tobacco, cigarettes in particular, and you change the clean indoor air laws through legislation, and then you put a tobacco message, a a prevention message, or cessation cessation message on top of that, your smoking rates plummet. And so our success hasn't happened in isolation, just know that I recognize that. So let's go back to the beginning, 1999, 2000, what did the landscape look like? Well, the smoking rates for teens, youth and young adults, I'll use those terms interchangeably throughout, was somewhere close to 25 percent, 25 percent, a massive number. And so the first thing that we did was try to figure out why in the world is this happening? And you'll see a theme throughout my conversation with you today, of when we have questions, we're going to the audience, try to understand why is this behavior taking place? What's going on that we don't understand? Because when you look at the product itself, it's a fairly easy conclusion that you get to. If you use the product as designed, you will die of cancer. <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward, there's, you can't really find many benefits, you can't find any benefits to smoking. If you use it correctly, you die. And so at the same time, when we look at the smoking rates for adults, the vast majority of them start before the age of 18. 80 to 85% of adult smokers start before the age of 18. If you take that aperture up to 24, 25 years old, you almost have virtually every single adult smoker. So we know it kills you. Uh, It seems like a logical conclusion. You'd think that would be a deterrent. However, the vast majority of the individuals who start as adults, they start when they're young. So where do we start? We started to look at what's going on with this audience, the adolescent. I don't know if many of you have a teen in your household. I have a six, a four, and a two-year-old, all boys. Um, we're just getting the crap kicked out of us. That's a different. <laughs> everything I own is broken. Um, but if you if you have an adolescent in your house, you're going to. I'll, I'm sure I'll get an amen from from the from the group. But you have this rational and irrational war going on at the same time, at all times, where they act like an adult, right, that's a very logical decision they made. I think they're going to be just fine. And then they make this irrational decision, you think, where did I thought we were advancing. Well, some of that is just biological, they're trying to figure it out. And so this tension between the rational and irrational is always taking place, and there's a lot of just, just that's how we're designed as human beings. And so we started to really dive into what does this tension look like for us in terms of how the youth and young adult audience are making their decisions. Because, again, we're trying to understand why is someone making a decision to use this product. And so we landed on what we're calling need states. And we've we've had different buckets come and go throughout our, our tenure. But ultimately, we think that adolescents, and you can look at the literature, and this backs it up to a certain degree, their actions kind of fall into these need states where they're trying, it's self-expression, they're trying to figure out who they are. My favorite is this, uh, I want to be independent and I want to fit in. <laughs> I love that. I want to be different, just like all my friends. And <laughs> I, I'm sure you see this, respect is huge. Um, the Risk, right? I mean, it, like, why are they making these decisions? Why are they jumping off, fill in the blank? It's, it's innate in some, in some, for some, uh, uh, just naturally how we're born. But all of this we think goes into trying to carve out themselves, have some measure of control, and it's kind of a power play. And so in 2000, this sort of power play of like really trying to seize power, and you think about the cohort in 2000, I'll talk a little bit about that, that was a main driver for decisions in sort of the developmental process. Well, who else do you think knew this, right? The tobacco industry. They knew this, they were way, way, way out in front. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to play into those need states, right? They're trying to appropriate culture. We're just like you, we're for you, we're on your side. While they were saying horrible things, they were exploiting communities behind the doors. So how did the public health community respond? See Evercoop, who was awesome, by the way, hero. But when you think about competing for the rational and the irrational at the same time, the tobacco industry knew that they couldn't make it a logical argument. It wasn't based on fact. The numbers don't hold up that it's just based on fact. And so what the public health community did was come out with facts. It's bad for you. Don't do it. Which what? Was playing right into the need states of saying, "Mm, back off old guy. Everything that he was saying was true. It is true. It's still true today. So much of the public health has been built on the work that he did. But at the same time, when you're talking about the audience, it wasn't getting through and resonating with him because he wasn't speaking in a way that they could actually internalize it and own it. And so another way to think about this was how we were sort of positioning ourselves in the issue in the mind of the consumer. So I'm gonna use a little bit of marketing speak. So what the tobacco industry did really well was really own this quadrant of being rebellious and being empowering. You can be an individual. You can be, be your own person. Take it, use it, do it. And where did public health land? Well, we landed down here. Just say no, think don't smoke. My favorite is tobacco is wacko. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. If I remember correctly, that was an actual prevention campaign that was produced by the tobacco industry. And Wait for it, it actually wasn't effective (laughs) because they knew that too. And so we had a decision to make, and it's hard to underestimate how important this decision was and how controversial it was when we first made this decision, but we decided to go at it with Big Tobacco and compete for that space. We decided to act like a marketer, develop a brand, and compete for that space. And it was a really difficult road for the the early sort of pioneers in our space to do that because there wasn't a lot of evidence at the time to do that. And so for us to take this on, we had two decisions. We could either, A, continue to go against the momentum head on. Don't rebel, kids. Don't rebel. Don't rebel. Don't do this. Know the facts. Or we could use the momentum to our advantage and channel it. And so kids are going to rebel. They're going to try risky things. We know that. You know that if you have them in your household, it's impossible. The best thing you can do is push them on the right path, right? Give them the tools so that they can make the decision. How many times, those of you who have a young adult in your household, have you had an argument or a fight because you're treating them like a kid and not an adult? (laughs) It happens all the time. So we decided not to fight against that. This isn't a conversation that's like getting your chickenpox and getting shot or vaccinated. It's not binary. Go do when they're going to go do it. It's much more complex than that. And we decided to use that momentum to our advantage. And this is how the first iteration of the campaign manifested itself in the real world. You may be familiar with that ad. Oh, thank you. Thank you, really, really proud of that work. You may be familiar with that ad, but you can feel the Gen (laughs) X-ness of that ad. You can feel the angst. And we were incredibly effective from the time we launched in 2000 to 2014, and I'm gonna talk about why I'm picking 2014, a tremendous, tremendous decline. We just hit that hammer again and again and again and again. We're not solely responsible, again, for that decline. We did play a significant part in that. Um, And we drove the smoking rate all the way down to roughly 10%. And so you may be thinking, great, that's awesome. Let's just keep going. (laughs) We've got this thing figured out. We literally celebrated for about an afternoon, and then we quickly sobered up and realized that we had a significant challenge on our hands because we did what? We went right back to the consumer to understand what was going on. And we'd started to see early on from some of our research that our audience was saying, yeah, truth is cool, I get, I get it, there's a high recognition, but that's, that's, for my, that's for my younger brother, my younger son. it's not for me. We were really surprised by that. And uh, we pride ourselves of being of the culture and for the culture and by the culture. And so we started to dig in. And we found some, uh, a pretty drastic change that had happened, which all of you are probably aware of. But when we first launched, we were talking to this guy, Slim Shady, Uh, so angsty, right? Um, Sorry about the middle finger, but I I sort of feel like that's indicative of of that generation. But everything that we did kind of came from up to this point, came from a Gen X tone. A little bit about Gen X, latchkey kids, super independent, Um, the not joiners, and if you were to look at the top 10 brands for Gen X, you wouldn't find any overlap with their parents at all. They would not call their parents their friends. There was no helicopter parent. And so very much a, the momentum there was give the finger to the man, and the tone and the, of the brand and how we positioned ourselves was really to appeal to that Gen X. Well, if you fast forward to 2014, you couldn't have a more polar opposite community, right? I mean, this could be anywhere in the country. The most diverse, uh, the most wired in, Um, In many cases, they're the IT person of their family, right? You're asking if you're an adult and you have a teen in your house, they're the ones that are programming everything in your house for you. And what we found was this really interesting momentum, and you've seen this, it's probably been well documented, that this group didn't have the same angst with authority. Why is that? Well, it really wasn't that they were struggling for power because they had power. And so our value prop really changed for us to be successful. It wasn't about channeling that rebellion the way it was for the past generation. It was really about channeling that power in a constructive way. And you could see examples of how the audience and the generation was really trying to figure out their footing on what to do. And you would see these really, really helpful things, right? The marriage equality, depending upon where you land on the issue, a really helpful thing in terms of getting behind the issue and using their power and their social footprint to influence behavior. And then you would see this bubbling up of things that were really unhealthy, the shaming, the bullying online. Um, And so we we kind of saw this as a, you know, like there's a chance to channel that momentum. And then we took a step back and realized the smoking rate at this time had dropped to about 9% versus almost 25% in 2000, down to 9%. We made a pretty significant shift then. Instead of focusing on the 9% that we were trying to get, those at-risk teens, to convince them to do something different. And looking at what we knew about the generation, their thirst to make a difference, their ability and their uniqueness to see themselves as a collective. Many of you in the room feel that way. That's why you're here. We could take that 91% and get them to engage on this issue on their own behalf. We could appeal to their desire to make a difference, and we could stamp this out. And it was a big shift for us because we were no longer the little guy fighting the giant, when you think about the 91%, you think about the power of this audience, we suddenly had become the giant. and It was very important for us to position ourselves that way and to position the issue as a generational call to arms, victory in sight. There's something magical that happens when you start, we'd see this in focus groups, the smoking rate was 25%. Once it got to nine single digits, people were like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to crush this, (laughs) we got this. So we had to use that to our advantage. So to say it was a significant shift, to being a brand that does not want to empower, to a brand that facilitates and hands over the keys to that, to that young adult or adolescent was seismic. And here's what it looked like when we launched, relaunched the brand in 2014. <laughs> Big Tobacco has targeted trend-setting hipsters to sell cigarettes in the U.S. So hopefully you can see the draft, by the way, I get that, I see, I'm just like, sign me up. <laughs> I'm such a sucker for the, my own advertising, I just love it. <laughs> the, uh, let's fight. Um, so hopefully you can, uh, you can see the shift and the transfer. We're still going after an enemy. I think it's really important for us to have an enemy. But you can see that we're actually now trying to be less about what we're against and what we're for, which is a pretty significant shift. You also, you may have picked up language there, we're asking you to enlist, we're asking you to participate, which means there's gotta be a role for you, which was another big shift for us in terms of how we staff, how we think about it, how we measure the campaign. And so from 2014 until today, smoking rates have continued to plummet. We're down right around the 5% mark, 5.6, I'm looking at Jody, who's with my, 5.6, oh, yeah, 5.4, sorry. <clears throat> Johnny's a stickler for getting it right, 5.4%. <laughs> and so we're extremely happy about that. When you look at the impact we've had over time, which is in part why we've won the award, we've saved over a million lives from smoking cigarettes. We've won tons of awards for the effort, uh, Emmys, Clio Lyons, AdAge has named us a top 10 campaign of the 21st century, and most important today, we were able to win the Clarence B. Jones Award for our impact and what we've done in society. Um, thank you. So what I thought was gonna be a short story was actually a long story, I apologize for that, but the short story is it works. And now I wanna talk a little bit about uh, how we in, how we make sure that it's going to work. And so a little bit about our process, what we do to ensure that we can deliver campaigns and messaging and a conversation that's gonna make a difference. And so when we, when we look at the work that we do, uh, basically everything that we do in terms of gathering research and intelligence, uh, evaluating the efforts that we do, they all fall into these three buckets, and so we spend a lot of our time in the formative phase. So The formative phase would be spending time with consumers. That's qualitative groups, that's ethnographies, that's doing uh, discussion boards, that's looking at secondary research for trends. Um, we do a lot of that work before we even engage on how are we going to have a conversation. And if you're like me, you probably jump to, oh, I, got, I I got an idea for an ad. <laughs> I've got an idea for a great tagline. We try as hard as we can to hold that at bay and let the intelligence drive that decision because we all have a bias, we all do. And so we spend a lot of time on the formative research, eventually we get to developing concepts and then we have a very rigorous pre-market testing protocol that we go through where we force exposure to a quantitative, statistically significant quantitative group to find out are we changing attitudes before we ever put real money behind it at scale. So that's the formative phase. And then we have a very big robust offering around the implementation of that. Implementation for us is gonna be, are people engaging with the ads? Are they watching the videos or not watching the videos? They like something, they do not like something. And then sentiment, which, my gosh, has gotten so much more increasingly difficult, those of you who are dealing with sentiment in the room, of what do we do with this conversation? We're used to people disagreeing with us. In fact, I love it when people disagree. Why? Because they're engaging in the conversation. I mean, the reality for us is there's no 18-year-old in his bedroom today going, God, my life would be complete if I had a truth ad right now. It's just, it's not the case. And so for someone to engage with us and say, I think you're wrong about that, where'd you get that fact? They're talking about a topic that's a low-interest category. That's a win. Now, for us on the sentiment side, where it gets destructive is when people get aggressive and they start to shout people down, and that's a big challenge for us. But we do look at sentiment. And then we also have what's called continuous tracking. So we're in the field capturing data, do you see the ad, do you like the ad, Uh, what's your affinity for the ad, can you play the ad back. We're doing that every three weeks, we have a rolling average, so all throughout the year I have a data point to understand, are people seeing what we're putting out there, can they recall what we're putting out there, and what kind of affinity do they have. That's very important because when we get to the outcome, that's a longitudinal cohort that we have. We're following anywhere between 10 and 14,000 kids on a panel and we go in and we do a cross-sectional survey every six to nine months. We have a baseline of their attitudes, we have a whole litany of questions that we're asking them, and that's the hammer to understand are we moving the needle. If I wait every six to nine months to find out are we making an impact, it's too late, which is why the continuous tracking is helpful for me to understand are we breaking through, what's happening. And so there's a lot that, go, that goes into that, those three prongs, but we are extremely disciplined and extremely rigorous at producing everything that you've seen. And if it doesn't look like or feel like it's been rigorous, that's by design because it's designed for the 12 to 24-year-old audience, but there's a lot of discipline that goes behind that. Everything that we do is built on a conceptual model. I just nerded out there and dropped the conceptual model uh, PowerPoint for you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on here. I realize that's hard to read, but those of you who are researchers, what you need to know is this is based on the Bob Hornick model. He's at UPenn. It's very disciplined. It's well-documented in terms of how we look at exposure and how that changes attitudes. I have taken the liberty, my research team loves it when I do this, to simplify this model into something that I can more easily understand, and it's this. So when we think about our model for change, this is how we talk about it, this is how we develop the work, and we look at short-term wins, so think about that continuous tracking and the engagement, and how that's going to play out for long-term success. And this takes time. If that's one important takeaway for you to have, if you're in the business of creating behavioral change, you will have the temptation to say, "This effort is going to do the heavy lift for us." It, it maybe it will. From our experience, it's a long-term value proposition. And so, for us, we focus much further upstream. So, again, if you think back to the quadrant I shared with you earlier, the normative change or the behavioral change over here is the "Hey, kids." Don't don't smoke. Hey kids, don't change. Stop it. Stop it. Right? We know that's not effective. And so for us, when we started to dig into why are kids actually smoking, it led to a whole host of issues and challenges way further upstream. They don't know it's bad for them, perhaps they don't think it's that bad for them. In some cases, if you're in the LGBT community, you don't know what they've been saying about you. Or if you're African American, you don't know what they've been saying about you. And when I share with you what the tobacco industry has actually done, what they are saying about you behind closed doors, and I change your knowledge here, it's going to take care of itself down here. And so we look at tons of different attitudes and beliefs. We've looked at hundreds of attitudes. And to try to understand, like, what is the correlation between this knowledge gap and the short-term wins to this long-term success? And every single attitude that we have, they all fall into what we call a, a themed construct, or an attitudinal construct. Sometimes we'll have, we'll have items that, that enter in, they enter out, but these are the constructs that every single attitude that we have funnels into, and consequently, every piece of work that we do funnels back into this, because if it doesn't start pushing those knowledge and attitudes in the short term, I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting my money, and I'm competing for market share. Why am I competing for market share? I may have skipped over that. Today, 1,200 people in the U.S. are going to die of a tobacco-related disease, 1,200 people. And we, we tease that out in some of the ads that you've seen. So if you're in the tobacco industry, if you're in that business, I feel sorry for you, but if you're in that business, you just lost 1,200 of your most loyal customers. So the business challenge for you is you have to get 1,200 new customers today just to stay afloat. 1,200 tomorrow, and the next day, in the next day. And we know, as I mentioned earlier, that the majority of those people come from the under 18 or the 24 and under age group. And so, I get this wrong, those are people that are going to go on to die of cancer. The stakes are high, so we have to get it right. We have to be disciplined. We have to be intentional in terms of what we're doing. So everything that we do funnels into these constructs. And what we've been able to find over time is that the more you're exposed to the campaign, the more that you can replay these ads, that we are actually pushing these attitudes in the right direction. That's just, this is how we're actually having an impact and having an effect. We can tether back through our longitudinal cohort that if you are aware of the ad and you can play it back to us, and I should also say the brand, we're going to have more research coming out that is not solely focused on an ad, but it's more on what role the brand has, the affinity of the brand. And We've done some research on this and we've documented that. We've had some papers published that show high affinity for our brand leads to prevention. And we're going to be playing more in that space if you think about what's an ad if you were to ask a 15-year-old. And so everything that we do has been pushing on these intentions. And so I'll just give you an example. The lower perceived prevalence of tobacco use. And so part of that is us framing this that nobody's doing this. This is something that's so old. It's in the past. Why would you ever do it? Because we know that if we ask someone, hey, what are the smoking rates of people around you? Their answer is an indicator of how at risk they are. So if they say, oh, everybody smokes, whether they actually smoke or not, doesn't matter if they do or not, if they think that the people around them smoke and it's a high prevalence number, they're at risk. Versus if they think, oh, nobody smokes, that's, who would do that? Bingo. And so a lot of what we do in our work is to try to say, nobody does this, this is so 2000, this is so Gen X, why would you do that? And so for each one of those buckets, that's what we're trying to do, is change those perceptions, change those attitudes, directly tie it back to what we're doing so that you will make a different change. Said another way, we've been able to show that campaign awareness is directly tethered to changes in beliefs related about smoking. It changes the norms and it changes behavior. And there's a lot of data and science behind that, but that is a very shortened but robust look at how we think about the world, how we think about the universe, how we go about looking at messaging and how we think about holding ourselves to a standard of is it going to have an impact or is it not? So, I'm going to pivot now and I'm going to talk a little bit about our posture. So, if we have all this research and we have all this work, how do we actually function now when the landscape changes so quickly from a 2014 even to a 2018 and beyond? Well, one of the things that we're very dedicated to and as an ethos as part of our organization is we are committed to the iterative process because it's hard to stick the landing. It's hard to stick the landing regardless of what you're doing, whether you're skateboarding or whether you're a gymnast or whether you're trying to get the right messaging. It's not easy, and we struggle with that. But we are dedicated to this process of de- design, implement, and repeat. In there, I would say, evaluate, tweak, design, implement, repeat, design, implement, repeat. Iterate, 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 iterate as much as we, he- as we can, because we know we're not gonna get it right out of the gate. And we're going to fall, and we're going to stumble, and that's okay. For us, if we can get to failure more quickly, the better off we are. What I don't wanna have happen is wait nine to 10 months and find out, oh my gosh, I, was, I missed the mark. That's money wasted, and those are people that are gonna get addicted. So we have to be committed to this process. It's not always easy, but it's important for us to get to a better place. We also just have to embrace the fact that our audience, uh, their attention span is limited today. You probably have seen the report that compares from, I think it was looking at the attention span of humans from 2000 to 2016, and uh, we're like one second, our attention span is one second better than a goldfish. I don't know if you've seen that report. Um, but our attention span has declined by like three or four seconds from 2000 to, to present day. And we feel that tension. We feel that, that sort of what do you got for me now, what do you got for me now? And so for us, it's really about how do we just play into that? How do we use that to our advantage? This is a, an omni-channel world for our audience. Uh, they think about and engage with multiple issues, multiple topics, multiple things all at once, their ability to multitask and at least consume data at a high rate is unmatched by anybody previously. And I know there are lots of studies that show the harm on that, but it's the reality of where we are today. We also have found that our audience with the advent of technology expects everything to be tailored to them. And if you have someone in your household, you're like, can it not be about you? I'm the same way, though. I mean, the exact same way. I mean, that's why I spend so much of my time on Yelp, because I want to pick the right restaurant that's going to fit my needs right now today. And so for us, it's not... It, it, we just can't have a one-size-fits-all message any longer. You can't either. And you you probably are feeling this tension with whatever line of work you're in or whatever issue that you have. But this idea that it's got to be uh, in a, positioned in a way that makes it unique to them has put a tremendous burden on us in terms of how we position ourselves. And they're not binary. So what they're going to say today may not be who they're going to be tomorrow. It's very hard for us in some cases to find anything that we can get the audience to take a stand on. This sort of like you-do-you Uh, it's, gosh, that's hard. It's extremely difficult. And so I just think the reality is, like, whatever I think is going to be the answer today, it could change in just a couple of days, depending on what happens in social and how the trends take place. So what does it mean for us to have an audience-first approach? So much of what we do is digital. I've shown you some TV spots just because they're easy for you to get an idea of who we are and what we do, but so much of what we do is in digital. And so taking a page from how we think about the universe and how we think about the audience, we very much look at building segments to drive the conversation. So as much as there's a lot of fluidity in how people identify themselves, when we look at the digital landscape, and you probably see this as well, there are patterns of behavior. So one of the things that we do during that iteration process is really try to identify what are people doing, how are they engaging with us, what are those patterns, and how can we group them into buckets, at least in a theory, to see if we can communicate them in a helpful way. We then look at those conversations like, what's happening? (laughs) Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? How do we perfect that? How do we implement that and and close the gap to be a little bit more quickly or get there more quickly? And then we take all of that, that learning and we basically try to replicate it where we can. So we find out where are we having conversations, what piece of creative is working, what piece of creative is not working. More importantly, what are they doing when they get to our site? How are they engaging with us? How do we find more people like me? How do we find more people that are more like Sean, how do we add more diversity to our portfolio, people who are engaging with us, and we go and we crank that engine again and again and again and again, and over the past four years, if you were to look at our media spend, just on acquiring consumers, the efficiency for our media spend has gone down tremendously over the past four years. Part of that is because we dedicated staff. We brought people in who spoke this language and speak this language better than I do. I think very highly of my skills. Um, My wife, if she were here, she would say, oh my gosh, yes. But I've got a six a four and a two-year-old, I can only consume so much media. It is impossible for me to keep my finger on the pulse and everything that's going on, as great as I think I am. Not to mention, the issue is way too big for me to get my arms around it. And so for us, it's bringing people in that do things better than I do. We have someone who runs our digital media who is amazing. He is awesome. He talks about things that I understand conceptually. He uses acronyms that I don't really understand. But he just crushes it when it comes to getting people into our pipeline in an efficient way. And I am so incredibly thankful that he's there. And we have multiple people, someone who understands the nuances of Snapchat in a way that I just, I won't be able to get. And so part of my job as being a good leader is to empower those individuals to really have ownership of that space so that we will be better. You need to do the same thing. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are and that fill your gaps. Um, that's been a really, really sweet learning for me as we've gotten a little bit, as I've gotten a little bit older, and also having kids and have been humbled a little bit. And so, when we take this sort of audience-first approach and we start to apply it, we are really intentional about developing what I'm calling uh, an engagement funnel or even an acquisition funnel. And so, if we were to look at how we're spending our money in the digital space, we believe we have to inform you which we talk about in form being primarily through video views or viewing our content in some way, and then we know we gotta get you engaged. Engagement for us can take a lot of different forms, but just give us, give us something. Engage with us in some way, shape, or form. If you engage with us and we can collect some of that information on you, so that's acquire. so if you complete a form on our site, if you take a quiz, if we get some bit of information from you, that's how we start to raise that information, that, that, that data back into the funnel to understand who's coming to our site, What are they doing? And how do we get them to be more active and participate with us? So as we have transformed ourselves from being just a Gen X into how do we talk to the modern youth and young adult cohort today, we've also had to develop an expertise and a muscle that we didn't have over the past, even over the past five years. And if you're in the same boat, it's not too late. It's not too late. And I think you can and should think about how do you bring in expertise to complement and speak into these disciplines that you may not have within your organization today. All right, what else about us? What's our tone? Hopefully this is self-evident from looking at the work, but we aggressively call out the BS. That's something as fighters, something as the brand called Truth. I mean, for us to really step into space, to have the courage to call a ball on a strike, if you will. And the, our, our audience expects that. They can eviscerate brands and people online better than anybody I've ever seen. And if you've been on the receiving end of that, you know the scathing power that comes from the audience when they call out B.S. And so as a result, not only do we feel like we need to do that, but the audience expects us to go hard. They expect us to peel the curtain back. They don't want us to, to uh, pretend and dance around the issues. That's not who we are as a brand, and that's not what they want from us. And so we take on hard issues. We take on social issues. Uh, we talk a lot about what's going on and what has gone on and how communities have been exploited. And we had a campaign that we launched a year ago that went straight after the tobacco industry's practices targeting African Americans in the African American community. And we picked this hashtag knowing that it was gonna cause a debate, and there were gonna people that were gonna get supportive of it, people that were gonna be really offended by that. And we had a woman named Amanda Seals who really served as the voice for us. She's on an HBO series, I'm drawing a blank now, Insecure, if you watch that show. And the fact was, if you live in D.C., in an African American neighborhood, 10 times more ads cigarette ads in your community than in non-African-American communities. And if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that the price cutting in those communities is significantly lower than in other communities. Why is that? Well, if you look at the the tobacco industry documents, you would see the deplorable things that the tobacco industry says about the African-American community. They've said it for decades, and they have systematically targeted that group, that population, and have eviscerated communities as a result. And so for us, This isn't just an African-American story, because we know when we talk to the younger generation, and you see this in your own work, I'm sure you've talked about it today, they say, that injustice is not okay, stop it. And so for us, we drive up that anti-industry sentiment, we're empowering you to make a decision, there's a real understanding now of what's at stake. If I change that knowledge gap, their decisions are gonna change as a result. So this is one example of how we've, we've leaned into uh, the social justice space, and we have a long track record of, of really focusing on that as a, as a core competency. At the same time, I'd be lying to you if I said we didn't think about entertaining the audience. Think back to the ADD nature, think back to the environment that we're in. It feels like the world is on fire right now. And we hear that time and time again when we go to focus groups. They just want a break. And so um, for us, it's about how do we meter these things so that the brand, and if we're looking at the brand affinity, so that the brand actually means something, but we don't want to be that annoying person who's always pushing their agenda, and our COO has said this to us time and time again, I love this phrase, don't let your karma get run over by your dogma, which is a great phrase. Again, I win the merit of the argument, right? But what do I need to say, and how do I need to position the issue in a way for the audience to make the right decision? And so for us, I don't have a product to sell, sadly. I'm competing with somebody who's got arguably one of the best design products ever made. It's addictive, and they've got distribution that's on every single street corner, and it's legal. And so I have to be nimble in terms of how I try to compete for that market share. And so we use entertainment in a lot of ways to, um, to really dial in the relevancy of the issue. And the strategy in terms of how we do that, the framework, so if, you, if this were to be those of you who, are, who speak marketing, speak the creative brief, it's, this is a boiled down simple version of how we think about creating work off of this. We know that the audience is passionate about specific issues. The challenge is they're not passionate about our issue. And so the key for us is, again, looking for momentum. Are there ways that we can take what they care about and connect the dots to what we care about so we have some common ground? Here's an example of how we've done that. I mean, let's face it, what life is worth living that doesn't have cat videos, right? And so I think you can see the strategy there a little bit in terms of how we're taking something that they care about and using that to our advantage. The same thing happens when we talk about the environment. Uh, We did a whole campaign recently uh, called Better Butts, which talks about all the kinds of beautiful butts that are in the environment, and no matter what shape or size or how they look, they're better than cigarette butts. Cigarette butts are the most littered item on the planet the most littered item today. It's weird to think about that social norming that's still, you walk out and see somebody throw down a cigarette on the sidewalk, you're like, ah, you don't even think about it, it's so normalized. And so for us talking about the environment in a way, we know it's a hot button for our audience. If you care about the waterways, if you care about the ocean, you have to care about cigarettes, and you have to care about, about the butts that are, getting, that are getting thrown away. So another point, we really seek to embed ourselves in culture, whether that's actually producing memes or videos, um, we think we need to be, we believe we need to be tangible in the real world. Again, thinking about my competition, they've got a leg up on us. And so any way that we can actually have ourselves be part of culture so that we're changing the narrative is very important to us. And so over the years, we've worked with people like Vans. I thought I had them on. I don't have him on today. That was a faux pas by me. We worked with Kevin Lyons, who is a graffiti artist, a street artist, and he designed a, a capsule for us with Vans this was put out into Journeys and all across the country. We did a three-year partnership with them. And we didn't make a ton of money off having vans in the marketplace. We actually drove a significant amount of affinity for vans because when people understood, like, wow, vans is thing next to truth, that's awesome. I feel better about my purchase. And, but for us, it's a tangible product that's in the marketplace. You're starting to see our brand. We're, we're using and help, helping to use culture as a way to propagate our message. It's exactly what the tobacco industry has done for decades. And so for us, it's about... How do we compete for that space? Another real important shift for us is giving the audience the stage. And so, uh, as we know, now so more than ever, this audience is not afraid to pick up a microphone and let their voices be heard. So that's something that we haven't done a lot in our history. Uh, CVS went smoke-free. Those of you may know that. And so we have been putting pressure on Walgreens. We actually had some of our activists that we had gotten through that funnel to find the hand-raisers who wanted to participate. We went to their shareholder meeting and told them in a very vocal way that we thought they should take smoking out of cigarettes. Because if you're about the health and wellness of your audience, you can't be selling cigarettes in a pharmacy. Those two things don't mix. And so we took to the streets um, and staged a zombie-like uh, effort to really showcase and bring attention to the fact that these two things don't mix. You can't be about health and wellness and sell the most addictive product on, on the planet that leads to cancer in your stores. Those two things don't exist. We're going to be doing more of that, giving the audience the microphone, giving them the share voice so that they can move into the space and actually have a physical presence. And then uh, really important for us, particularly with this generation, is we know we need to recognize the effort in terms of what they're doing. Um, for anybody to participate and engage and to do something for us, we need to reward them and we need to do it frequently. And that can take a lot of different forms. It can be a badge, it can be putting them, taking over our social feed for a day, but some way of reward to recognize that, hey, you cared about this issue, you did something, thank you. One creative way we did this is when we launched the brand, or relaunched the brand in 2014, every single person who signed up to follow us got a personalized piece of artwork from a gentleman named Faust, Faust is a graffiti artist. And so what we did is we had everyone who who signed up to follow us socially he basically gave them their own piece of artwork with their Twitter handle, or their social handle. We filmed it on Periscope, back when that was a big thing, kind of came and went. Um, and we sent this to every single person who, who logged in to say thank you, thank you. And so there are creative ways that we can do this, there are creative ways that you can do that. Just give you an example of one way that we're trying to use technology, use our cachet, and use our influence in a way to really push the needle forward. So, awesome. What do you do next, right? What's the encore? Well, just like in 2014, the pathway for us is not getting any easier. Uh, with a brand like Truth, the question we're grappling with today is how do you really function and what posture should you take in a post-truth world? I was Before I came over this morning, two ads came on uh, on television in the background that talked about the, that were playing into this, like, what's the real truth? And do you know the real truth? And they're two different products. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is like now part of the cultural narrative of playing into our fear of not knowing the truth. And so for us, where facts matter, because the facts of what the tobacco industry has done, the facts about the harmfulness of the products is really something we have to communicate. We've got to find our footing, and how do we do that in a way that that doesn't automatically send up a red flag? We're not walking away from our brand. We're not walking away from the facts because they are real, but how we do that, how we leverage that is going to be a real challenge for us moving forward. And then the landscape for us is extremely thorny. I didn't touch on, for us, the elephant in the room, which is vaping. Last year... Vaping for young adults, youth and young adults, was somewhere around 9%, 10%, depending upon which, where, you, where you do the cutoff. Data's gonna come out um, in just a little while that shows that, that rate now at 20 to 22%. 20 to 22% in one year. If you look at Juul as manufacturing manufacturer and were to plot their growth over the last three years, it's like a hockey stick. They own 65 to 70% of market share in three years. And so we've got our work cut out for us because that product is cool. There's not a common knowledge of it not being cool. So the momentum of how we entangle or disentangle the activity there is gonna be extremely difficult and thorny for us. And then we have populations and groups and affinity groups that are much harder to move on the smoking, uh, the initiation rate, the LGBTQ community. If you live in the south or the southwest, we're calling that sort of area of the country tobacco nation. Smoking rates are extremely high compared to the national average. It's gonna require us to do something unique there. And then we're tackling opioids. So we're in the opioid space, we launched our first campaign in June, 74,000 Americans died last year. I, would, without a doubt, would believe that people in this room have been affected by it, whether it's in your family, whether it's you, whether it's a loved one, it's a scourge that's sweeping across the country. We're in the fight, and we're trying our best to figure out how do we apply the learning and what we have to tobacco to prevent the misuse and abuse in opioid space. So we have our work cut out for us, but stay tuned, I'm, I'm, I am in it, we're in it, we're fighters, and so we're gonna keep slugging away. So I would just say a couple of things, lessons learned to finish out, I'm almost out of time. Aggressively compete, 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 compete. Just because you have a nonprofit and you have the moral high ground, which I believe I do, doesn't mean people are going to care about your issue. You have to get in there and compete because there's some other cause, there's some other issue that's competing for their mind share. If you're raising money, you're competing for that share of wallet. Channel the momentum. I would encourage you, put down your bias, Look for where you have momentum. Channel that momentum to your advantage. Don't try to be the person rolling the boulder uphill. And then be relentless in your focus. I I really wanted to share with you those constructs on purpose so that you understand how we think about all of our efforts being channeled towards a focal point that we can measure. And on that note, be outcome driven. You may not have a longitudinal cohort the same way we do, but you aren't going to know if you're successful if you don't know where you're going and what that success should look like. And so I hope that's been helpful to you. Very humbled for us to win the award. Thank you very much for your time and energy. Appreciate it. Thank you.